0: This is The Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your
1: guide on the side.
0: I would suggest you forge more
2: character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr.
3: Matt Townsend. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. I'm Leanna Tan, here to give you some of Matt's best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. Today, we are observing a very important, and some might even say, sacred day. Today we are celebrating or commemorating Veterans Day, which is a public holiday held on the anniversary of the end of World War I in honor of U.S. veterans and victims of all wars. I think this is a very important day that we shouldn't just let go under our radars because I think every single one of us either knows a veteran personally or someone who is serving in the armed forces or have been affected by war in some way. I mean, we can't really escape being affected by war. The reason that we are all here today listening to this episode of Matt Townsend is because our country is free and we are alive and in America because people sacrificed their lives to defend our country. So I decided to play back this very heart wrenching interview with Matt and his friend T. Herschel, who served as a medic in Vietnam. Now, I actually debated playing this for you for a split second because I'll warn you, it does have some graphic content in it. And I am the first to band with you people who are against hearing graphic stories on the public radio. But I think that it's really important to understand where these veterans are coming from and empathize with them and listen to their stories. Nothing comes for free, including freedom. So let's listen to this firsthand account of a Vietnam War veteran who shares what it was like for him to face death on a daily basis and sit with friends, knowing moments later, some of them would die.
1: I grew up in a, in a patriotic home. My dad didn't serve because his age was between things. He was too young for World War II and too old for Korea. Mm. So we didn't ever serve in the military. But like the 4th of July was the biggest holiday for us. We celebrated that in a big way. And he taught us to respect the flag and love our country. And so that's the way I was reared. Neat. I got into high school. And by then, we were a we were full bore in Vietnam. Uh, November 1965. I, I think I've got my dates right. November 65. President Johnson sent the first infantry division on a, on a huge ship. Sent him into uh, into probably Cameron Bay, mm. and that was the first official um, combat unit that was in Vietnam. Prior to that, we were you know advisors, or whatever that right.
0: meant, visitors.
1: <laughs> and and it, it's it's interesting to me that that first unit was the first infantry division because that's the unit I ended up being assigned to when I got there. So this was in the end of 65, and six or seven months later, in June of 66, I graduated from high school. I immediately enrolled at the University of Utah. And back then, this this was before the lottery. Hmm. So the law was you registered for the draft at 18, and when you were 19, you got drafted. It wasn't a matter of, you know, my my, my number was drawn way into the series, so I'm safe. Yeah. When you were 19, you got your letter. However... You could get a deferment for a lot of things. If you were 4F and physically unfit, you, you didn't have to go. Uh, if you were 1S, which I think meant you were 18 years old and you'd registered, but you were still in high school, so you were safe then. Or if you were a sole surviving son or you had a job that was critical to the community, those were all things for which you could get a deferment. One of the deferments, called a 2S deferment, was you were enrolled in a college program and you had a, a specific number of hours and you had good grades. And I, I had that. I had really good grades. You were
0: shooting for that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I had these really good grades. I, I think I could have set out the war. I think I probably could have done just fine, just keep registering and get my education and be safe. Oh, wow. But my heart wouldn't let me do that. Interesting. I had a bunch of friends that I graduated with that had, had listed right after, right out of high school, guys that I, you know, I'd known since the fourth grade. And we had this little newsletter that came out in our community every week that talked about had pictures of all these guys that were serving that had been either wounded or killed. So I'm seeing pictures of my friends that lost an arm or lost a leg or too often lost their lives because they were over there fighting for my freedom, and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And after my first year, I finished my freshman year, I just couldn't deal with it anymore. So before it came time to sign up for my sophomore year, I went down and visited with the recruiter, and I got him to make me two promises. He promised me that I could be trained as a medical corpsman. And he promised me that I could go to Vietnam. So I signed up. And in uh, September of 67, I went to Fort Lewis, Washington for my basic training. And Uh then after that, down to Fort Sam Houston, Texas for medical training. And in February of 68, I think the specific day was the 25th, I landed. We were on a World Airways jet out of Oakland, California. And we landed at Quinone Airfield in (laughs) Vietnam. It was right in the middle of the Tet Offensive. Oh my word! Which was the biggest offensive yeah. of the war? They were celebrating the Chinese New Year or something like that, and the build-up was huge and more casualties than at any other time in the war. That's when we landed, and we actually took fire as we were as we were getting off the jet. Welcome, welcome. to Vietnam. So that, yeah, that was my welcome. Yeah, I was kind of hoping for one of those Hawaii lays. In the yeah, Pacific you didn't Eastern. get a Hawaii lay, but I, I didn't get any of that. So I, I got my assignment. Ended up with the First Infantry Division, First Battalion, Twenty Sixth Infantry. Bravo Company, November Platoon, and uh, I was ready to go. Hmm. So I I I got my first eagle flight. I, I went in and, and I was given all of my equipment—a bag to carry stuff in—and I filled it up with bandages and salt tablets and antibiotics and morphine and and uh, hemostats and sc- scalpels, all the stuff I might need as I got out there and had to take patch people up and take care of their lives. I got my M sixteen, which I didn't keep for very long. <laughs> But I went out with the rest of my troop for an eagle flight. Now, what an eagle flight is was the means of transportation to get us from one place to another in the jungle. And basically what it was is we'd go out to a a bunch of cement pads. As I recall, there were six or eight of them. And we'd stand on one of those landing pads and helicopters would come in. You could look up in the sky and you'd hear the, you know, the beep, beep, beep yeah. the rotors. See these helicopters coming in and a Huey would come down and hover about a foot off the ground and four or five of us would jump in it. It would take off and then the next one would come in and four wow. or five people would jump in it. And that's how we got to where we were going. I was on this, this Huey with four other guys, five of us, plus the pilot, the crew chief, and the door gunner. So there were, what, eight of us on there. And I didn't know where we were going. I was, you know... I was You're high new. enough to have a need to know. A greenie, yeah, I was. Even after I wasn't green, I still didn't. Right. Wasn't important enough to know. What I did know was that it would take us about half an hour to get to wherever we were going, and I knew that it was a hot LZ. Now LZ means landing zone, and hot means there's combat going on there. That's the reason we were going out was to reinforce the troops that were in the middle of a firefight. So uh. the the likelihood, the probability, was like near one when we got at the other end, people were going to be shooting at us. Were you terrified or at what? At first, I was I, I was terrified. I was. I was shaking. I could – you know, I'm remembering it still. And I could barely hold still in my seat. I just wanted to get out. Oh, my word. Uh, I, was, I was 19 years old. First yeah. time I'd ever been away from home. And, uh, and, and I remembered what we were taught in – in our basic training. Now, I don't know if it was true, because these drill instructors would tell us all kinds of stuff to motivate us. <laughs> yeah. But I remember one drill instructor when we were in our jungle training after I finished my Fort Sam Houston medical stuff, he said, if you're going into a hot LZ, you got an 80% mortality statistic. 80% of you are going to be dead. Again, I don't know if that was true or not.
0: Oh, my word.
1: But I can tell you I believed it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I was
1: looking at these other four guys. There were five of us that were going to get off at the other end. And, you know, I hadn't known them for a long time. A couple of them a day or two. A few of me went through training together, so I'd known them for six months. But there's something about the war that causes these instant friendships, and I I really cared for these guys. And I sat there thinking, in in half an hour, these four friends of mine are going to be dead. Wow! And then I had this thought that kind of reached down and grabbed my heart and stood me up. You know, maybe it'll be me. And that's when I really started to to be terrified, I guess. Yeah, And I started to think about my life. You know, you hear about your life flashing. Yeah, it did. I remember it all the way back. And 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 I, what I really remembered that surprised me was I had taken in school, i had taken a lot of religious training, seminary, we called it. And I'd learned a lot of scriptures. And the way I remembered that experience was I'd read the scripture because I had to, and I'd pass the test and then I'd forget about it. Well, suddenly I was remembering all these scriptures. Oh, wow. And one of them that came to me, was in Matthew, I think the 10th chapter, and it, it talks about, don't fear who can destroy the body. Be afraid of he who can destroy the body and soul in hell. Oh, and once I thought about that, it, it was like this peace came over me. And, and I, I, I was no longer, it wasn't like I didn't think I was going to die. It was like it didn't matter. I knew that I was there for a good purpose. I was doing the right thing. Right. And I, I realized that I tried my whole life to live the way I should have when I was more successful than less successful, and it, I just wasn't worried anymore. So we got to the other end, and the helicopters went down to ground level, two or three feet off the ground, and the idea was you stand up in a doorway and you jump out, and then the next guy jumps out, and as soon as the helicopter's empty, it takes off. Well, I, stu- I was the second one standing in a doorway, and the guy in front of me was this huge guy, six foot four and like four feet across, and <clears throat> as soon as he stood up, he took a, a round in his forehead. Oh. and fell forward, and I just reflexively grabbed him, and the weight of his body pulled us both out of the helicopter. And the chopper lurched up a few feet, and it was hit by an incendiary round, and it exploded. Oh and, my and, word. and everybody died. And I realized in that second that I was the statistic. I was the 20%. It. You, know, it re- you made it really the first round. The rest of them were gone, and, and I was there. Wow. So that was my introduction to Vietnam, and over the next 18 months, that experience with variations here and there was repeated over and over.
3: Welcome back. I'm Leanna Tan. This is The Matt Townsend Show. In honor of Veterans Day, we are listening to a firsthand account of a man who served in the Vietnam War. He just told us in the last segment what it was like to enter the war as an 18-year-old boy and to be expected to go heal the wounded and hold the dying. I thought it was very impacting when he talked about sitting with his friends that he'd met in training in this helicopter and then realizing as they were traveling together that some of them might die within the next half hour or so And they didn't know who, if any of them, would survive. And we left off with T. Herschel talking about how he was getting out of that helicopter for the first time with his friends. And the guy in front of him immediately was shot in the head. So he grabbed him and the weight of his buddy's body pulled both of them out of the helicopter. And he looked up and watched as a helicopter exploded right there. And everyone left inside died. Man. Hearing these stories suddenly puts everything into perspective, doesn't it? I'm just thinking about all of these tiny, petty things that I've been complaining about all day. And then just hearing these stories, it makes me feel just a little bit more grateful for the small things and grateful to be alive. Well, we are going to continue listening to this interview with T. Herschel as he gives us a little more perspective on the realities of war. And I do want to warn you, some of the stuff he talks about is pretty graphic and may be disturbing. But he is sharing with us just a fraction of the sacrifice armed service volunteers give every day.
1: Now, I had an M-16 when I first <laughs> got there. And after about a week, I think, I, I killed somebody. And I, I still I remember, it, I remember it in slow motion. Mm-hmm. And, and he, I was behind him and I shot off. I saw the back of his head come off and he was a kid, mm-hmm. a little boy, you know, maybe 15. And he, I knew he's got a mom and dad at home and, and brothers and sisters will look up to him and they'll never see him again. And it's because of me. And it, it, it tore me to pieces. Uh, I, I'm still emotional 44 years later. So uh, I I got rid of my M16 because medics didn't have to carry him, And that allowed me to carry... Twice as much in terms of medical yeah. stuff. So for the rest of the time, I did what you just said. I'd I, I hang, hang out with the boys. I didn't need a gun because they protected me. Yeah. And when somebody was wounded, I'd stop and I'd patch them up and call in the dust-off helicopters to take them back to the hospital and move on to the next one. Oh, my word.
0: Well, and what a move to give up your gun. I mean, I guess it, it was for you, wasn't it? It's just easier. To, it might be easier to die than uh, to have I had, to take
1: another one. I had no trouble at all giving up that weapon. Yeah, I mean, I bet it was just peace. <laughs> and I, and and I'll tell you, I w- when I took that life, it, it happened. That happened twice. The the second time was was with a knife. But I'll I'll probably talk about that because it had an impact on on my life and the way I thought. But when I took that life, the, the feelings that I had were overwhelming, and and I couldn't believe that I I did that. I didn't yeah. feel guilty because of the circumstances, but I was appalled at what human beings do to each other. And what really bothered me even more than that was the dehumanizing effect that the war had on so many people. Friends yeah. of mine that were great guys in every respect except that killing didn't bother them. As a matter of fact, they were proud of it. They'd keep a the body count and they'd make little marks on the stock of their, of their weapons to keep track of how many people they killed.
0: And I, I, I could not... I still can't fathom yeah. that. Yeah, what is that? You know, I can't even shoot a deer anymore. Because so. we have we're sending all these men into war and women into war and we don't we don't quite think of that do we we don't we don't and
1: you know what so many people think of is they're the enemy and, and they're right yeah they're the enemy but why are they there they're there for the same reason I was they believe in a cause they believe in their country they have family they love people yeah. they love their kids they love their parents they want to try and protect them mm-hmm. whether or not their cause is right that's for the right. other people to argue about but he's just like me and yeah yeah it was either him or me, but and i'm and I'm glad it ended up to be him,
0: but another part of me is very, very sad well, there's a cost isn't there there's a very <laughs> a very profound cost and it doesn't go away that's what that's true that's what we're seeing is is they're all coming back with PTSD and yeah, that's right post-traumatic stress disorder I mean It's, it's, you made it through. I mean, there's day one and then you gave your gun up. How soon? A week later, about a week later, you're giving your gun up. Yeah. So within a week, you're already having to take a life. That's right. And about three days after that, I received my first
1: wound. Oh my word. And this was a really interesting one because I don't know if it was a bullet or, or a piece of shrapnel because we never found it, but it came in the front of my helmet and it came on an angle. So it was deflected. And, and this was just a remarkable thing. It's impossible for this to happen, but it did. It, it penetrated my skin, but it didn't penetrate the skull. And it was deflected and went all the way around the left side of my head and Holy came out the back and came out through the helmet. So if you took the helmet, you saw a hole in the front and a hole in the back. Holy cow. you, so, thought, oh. you should have had a, a I thought, Man, this guy, head. this guy bought the farm, but the fact was I didn't even take out a lease on the farm. I, I had a terrible migraine for a I few days that. and some bleeding that I treated myself and on the left side of my head, my hair all fell out and it took, you know, a few weeks for it to grow back. But that was it. I mean, wow. <laughs> so that was the first wound that I received. <laughs> so you're and, and that was three days in. It, it was about eight days. in. Eight it was days three days in. after after that uh, I turned in my weapon. Oh, my word. Yeah. Incredible. Um. So there was an, uh, the, the second time I was wounded. And this was this was a long time later. I, maybe it was the last time I was wounded. I was wounded three times. This was probably the third time because it was months, months later. Um, I was – we were in a firefight and I stopped and was kneeling down taking care of our wounded. And it, this it wasn't like the movies you see of World War II where there's a definite front. We were in the jungle. Yeah, you right, were And I might be here and there's some enemy over there on the other side of them. with some more of our guys. We're just all mixing it up together. So I was on my knees treating – this wounded G.I. and I I heard the bush crack behind me and I turned around and I saw a VC, a Viet Cong. And he had his rifle and he was running at me. It turned out the rifle was a little sawed off four ten gauge shotgun. Oh my word. And I grabbed the barrel of it to pull it away from him and I in the process of doing that I pulled the barrel down into my thigh and it went off. I got a big hole about the size of a quarter (laughs) in my left thigh. And it but it didn't hit any blood vessels and it didn't hit any bones. And I still have all of the all are the, uh, all the, or the shot, shot, bird shot in there. And every time I have my knees x-rayed, you know, they're like, look at you, your leg. Like, I have <laughs> to explain what happened. Holy cow. So anyway, I threw the weapon away and he came at me with a knife and it was it was a long knife. I wrestled it away
0: and I- I mean, you're a big, you're not big, but I, you're bigger than I was a, a lot Viet Cong. I
1: was a lot bigger than a Viet Cong and he was again, was a, was a young boy. Oh, man. I wrestled the knife away and I I pinned him to the ground through his throat and in the process it severed his jugular vein and his carotid artery and I think it may have nicked his spinal cord too but that didn't matter because with both of those blood vessels in, he you know, was dead. in in moments he exsanguinated and was gone and and, and again I had the same thoughts wow. you know I I thought about his mom and dad at home and they're never going to see him again yeah you know, it, it, that part of Vietnam was just a killer for me I'm glad I only had to experience that twice.
0: We're talking to a friend of mine, Terry Herschel, who was a medic during the Vietnam War. He shared with me the pain he felt when a close friend was killed and how or even if a soldier can say goodbye.
1: In the moment, you don't. You just don't have a chance. There's just too much, too much happening, too much going on. And people have often asked me, were you, were you afraid? And the answer that I can say is not because of any bravery on my part. I, I was never afraid when we were in a firefight. You had a job to do and you did it. You were busy. You you just went about the tasks that had to be done and you did them. Leading up to it in anticipation or thinking about it afterwards, yeah. there was plenty of time to be afraid. And I was a lot. Yeah. And in answer to your question, after the firefight was over, after we'd sent what was left of his body back, um, I had time to think about it. And again, it's been 44 years, but I believe I remember weeping. Mm. Uh, thinking about about him, and, and even more than that, thinking about his bride that he'd married, I, I think a week before he came, and and he was gone now, and that, that was very heart wrenching for me. We don't get it, do we? We yeah, it's, we don't it's get what you've all been through. It's true, powerful. Uh, a few years later, a few years ago, I I went to uh, Washington to the Vietnam Wall, which was a, a profoundly moving experience I for bet. me. And, and I went and I looked up all of the guys that I knew that I had fought with yeah. and many of whom had died in my arms. Yeah. And I took, I took uh, what do you call them? Call rubbings. Like the rubbings. Rubbings of their names. Yeah. And I, I've got those in a scrapbook somewhere. But I,
0: I, I specifically looked up Stephen. Was it, it seems like medic is, a, uh, it's like a chaplain almost. It's kind of an honorable, I mean, you're there at a very private, personal time. They're battling to live, and I mean, I'm sure you're just saving their lives. But to know that they're dying in your arms, what's yes. that like? Um, what do you say? What do you do in that moment? You, you,
1: I don't know. <laughs> just, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. You, you just you just hold them and treat them and and wipe their their brow off and, and wait for it to, for them to pass. Mm. Um, that's an honor. I I felt very honored to have that opportunity. You know, yeah. they, they, they called me Doc. Uh, a lot of them didn't even know my name. So <laughs> You're just the redhead, Doc. I, and I was glad because you know I didn't want people to call me Terry. Right. But uh, it turns out that I didn't need the weapon because you know if I wanted a moment of privacy, too bad. I, I, I they wouldn't let me go anywhere without some. Right. They're going to have watch someone. me and take care of me. And and I felt I felt honored by that.
0: That's great. I was glad I had the opportunity to serve in that. Uh, T. Herschel is his name, and uh, truly a hero to me. One of the greats, uh, I truly believe. Let's be very, very real about what these soldiers have done and what they're still doing over in Afghanistan, in Iraq, um, especially Vietnam. Didn't they didn't get the welcome home? They didn't get the praise from people, um, and they uh, they didn't get they didn't get maybe the recognition they need. So why don't we give it to them? Now, by celebrating and honoring them this Veterans Day, when you see somebody that served, uh, no matter where they've served in the military, get out there and uh, thank them for and, and show them your appreciation for what they've given and been willing to give to this country.
3: Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Leanna Tan, and this is The Matt Townsend Show. If you're just tuning in, we started off the show with a very touching interview with a veteran who served as a medic in the Vietnam War. He told us some of his firsthand accounts of what it was like surviving deadly wounds, seeing the enemy of war face-to-face and realizing that they are human too, and the pains of killing another human and watching your own friends die. And this is not an easy topic. It's uncomfortable for many to talk about and even just think about. I mean, death and war is not my favorite subject either, but I'm really grateful for this man, T. Herschel, for sharing his story and representing the heartache and sacrifice that all of our service volunteers face. I know I fall culprit of not really understanding what our service volunteers go through and perhaps not appreciating them enough. So that's what I want to address for this next part of today's episode. I'm going to play back an interview Matt did with Mike Haney, where they talk about how supportive Americans really are of our veterans.
0: This is this is honestly, to me, a sacred topic. And I don't think we do it justice here and I watched your TED talk and was incredibly moved by just some of the basic questions that you ask. Do just as an expert who researches it, who studies it, how do you feel? What grade maybe would you give us as Americans on 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 how supportive we are of our veterans?
2: Well, that that's uh, he, first question put me right on the spot. You know, I, I would I would answer the question in two ways. I, I think at a um, at, at maybe a, a superficial level, I'd, 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 I'd say we're in an A minus. Uh, but truth be told, um, you know, I think the extent to which Americans um, meaningfully and deeply are invested in the, the post-service lives of our nation's veterans and their families, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably put that at a C. Mm. And And I say that because one of the things that we don't talk enough about, I think, today is that you know the fact that we've been at war for the better part of the last 15 years, um, and and that that those are wars that have been largely fought by um, of an all volunteer military, and and this is something new in our history. Um, this this conflict is the first conflict that the the burden has been shouldered by. Um, a, a military force of volunteers and that naturally disconnects the costs and consequences of war from the majority of our citizens and um, it, it's not it's not necessarily a function of of um, some intentional decision on on the part of um, those who aren't military connected but it does create um, a dimension of of Social isolation and social disconnectedness from uh, among those who have served when they come home.
0: Mm. So, so because I think a lot of people, and I'm sure you'd think have thought this, that at some point that you know, boy, it's good because these are people that want to be in the military. This is their passion, their love. They go after it, they chase it. But what you're saying is because we can, because we can have a volunteer military. There's other consequences that happen, which are we don't, we don't maybe even know people that are in the military. We don't, can, our brother isn't at risk of going to have going to join the military. So it actually it just moves us away from the real consequences.
2: Sure, and you you touch on your question touches on really two issues there. One, um, I I think because, and I'll use that phrase again, because. One of the consequences of an all-volunteer military is to largely disconnect the consequences of of war from your average American. Um, from a from a, a policy perspective, it actually makes it, in, in my estimation, far too easy to leverage military force mm. as an instrument of policy because um, you know the folks that make those decisions are not the military; they're they're politicians and. And when their constituencies um, are not largely impacted by using military force, it, it makes it, I think, a little easier to, um, to allow military force to be leveraged as an instrument of policy. But the other, the other consequence um, goes back to this, this idea of, of social isolation and disconnectedness among those who have served. and you know for example we see this play out on college campuses all the time you know when you, you, you look at a, a, a student population of you know 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 and among that group there might be um, 100, 200 maybe that have worn a uniform um, particularly during a time of war it 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 creates an environment where they look to their left they look to their right and there's there's nobody that mm. has that shared experience yeah
0: there.
2: and uh it it it's it's difficult
0: and then this isolationism or and just being isolated and not having a peer uh that that's there with you um I, I guess too that might be leading to other problems that we're hearing and seeing suicide rates um and just i mean i guess just just people falling off the map veterans that are just disappearing
2: yeah, sure, and and uh, you know all of the research that um, that we've done here at the Institute for Veterans and Military Families, and that you know has been has been performed by others looking at um, the, this 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 set of issues, the 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 cultural, social, economic concerns of this generation of veterans. You know, one of the one of the um, strong antecedents, one of the 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 things that comes up over and over again in that research is, um, that this idea of social disconnectedness, social isolation. Um, you know, if you, you watch my Ted talk, you know, you heard me tell the story of a, you know, a young veteran that, you know, I had a chance encounter with on an airplane who, um, you know, rattled off a, a host of challenges that he has faced since he's been home. But, um, you know, the, the thing that, he describes as, as most challenging most troubling um, is now that now that he is home he feels anonymous among the very people that sent him off to war and mm. I, I think um, that is a um, th- that 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 am- anonymity that that isolation um, is something new to this country if you think about our um, you know our, our history um, even through Vietnam, you, you, we had a, a conscription, a draft uh, model of military service where you know a, a large percentage of Americans shouldered the burden of our of our military conflicts. That's not true today. Right. Um, so when our service members come home um, and, and transition to civilian life, it, it's very, very often um, they. Whether it's in the workplace, on a college campus, um, et cetera, you know, in their neighborhoods, there are, there are not many um, people that that they can look to and say, you know, this this is this is my peer, this is someone who has that that same shared experience.
0: Yeah, and I and then we we kind of say, well, yeah, but you don't need that because you you know we're paying for your education <laughs> or we're there's some other benefit you you got paid to go do it, but the reality is there's something there's no honor there's no i think a lot of us would um and they're not in uniform and you can't like when a when a soldier gets on an airplane and you can see him you can thank him and appreciate him but when they come home and they take their uniforms off and they just get they fall back into uh the regular world there is this anonymity and and there's this it just seems like they're lost they're gone yeah
2: yeah and and i think again um your your question your question hits on a on a on a couple couple issues there and and you know one i i um i have heard um from folks before that that equate the all volunteer military to you know making any other vocational choice someone right. um, would, would make right. whether that you know to be a a teacher or a plumber air or air conditioner
0: a, yeah yeah fixing uh, but, air conditioners
2: you know i i i I do have to i push back on that um, on that uh, comparison because what we're talking about here is someone who volunteered um, to be sent off to um, to to fight mm. and to wage war on on behalf of i I guess what I'm saying is um, when when someone volunteers for military service they are volunteering to to Shoulder the burden of a of a society's most morally troubling endeavor, and that is um, to to go off to war. And I think we have a different level of responsibility um, to those folks, given that um, as a society we are conferring to them that um, that that moral choice. And and I think that's different than yeah. um, volunteering for. Um, to you know, again, to be a to be a, a school teacher or a plumber or a mechanic, um, and you know that that also, though, you know, speaks to um, speaks to coming home and um, the extent to which we're able to support and empower um, those who have volunteered when they take that uniform off. Um, I think is I believe is is part of our moral obligation. Mm. How and I
0: have a friend that flew Apaches in um, Iraq, two or three tours. An Apache is a really bad instrument. He got really good at saving a lot of lives and doing a lot of stuff. High adrenaline, highly trained, comes home, can't find a job. Especially, you, there's no jobs as an Apache helicopter pilot in the United States, right? So he he couldn't even get a helicopter pilot job and then needs to somehow, I guess, what? Get another job? It's just, it's gotta be, and and then like you're saying, the anonymity of it all. Like nobody knows, it's easy to fall into depression, plus any PTSD, other related issues. How do we help them, Mike? How do we, what can we do to actually bring them to be more connected to them and and, and eliminate the social isolation? Yeah.
2: So on on the job front, you know, I, I will say I, I give actually um, great credit to the nation's employer community for over the course of the last 10 years for really um, stepping up and, and taking this issue on. There are um, large coalitions of, of, of employers um, that have that have stepped up, collaborated, worked together um, to it to address the unemployment challenges facing this generation of veterans. And I think the last statistics I saw on the unemployment front, um, the unemployment rate among the nation's veterans is actually at it, its lowest point. Oh, great. Um, yeah. In the last 15 years. As a matter of fact, I think it's lower than the unemployment rate for all Americans. And that, um, for for folks who have not followed that challenge, you know, I, I can say seven years ago the unemployment rate, for this generation of veterans, was over twenty percent. Oh wow! So it, there has been a real sea change on on the on the employment front, um, but that's only you know as you mentioned, it's only part of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, you know, on the on the education side, I think this is where we have uh, an awful lot of work to do. You know, this generation of veterans, you know, probably about seventy percent. You talk about volunteering for service. Um, about seventy percent of of the post nine eleven generation of veterans who did volunteer for service indicate that they did so in large part for the opportunity to go to college, you know, the opportunity to leverage the the post 9/11 GI Bill to get an education after service. Um, here's where we have more work to do. If you look at, um, you know, the the extent to which traditional colleges and universities, and I'm I'm talking about. Um, you know the traditional non, non-profit residency colleges and universities—the extent to which they're, um, they have stepped up in the same way as the employer community has—I I would argue they haven't. Um, if you if you look at the data, there are um, there there are only small pockets of of post-9/11 veterans ten, attending you know, the, this nation's Mm. best colleges and universities. And it, and it's not because they don't have the, the, the credentials, the, the the work ethic to succeed there. It's because, um, they don't largely, uh, when you, when you, when you ask them the question, they don't feel like, um, they'd be welcome there Hmm. at those universities. They don't feel like they'd fit in. Um, and, and, we have to change that. Uh, you know, I think uh, when you look back after World War II, um, you know, the, the the original GI Bill afforded the millions and millions of returning World War II veterans the opportunity to pursue an education, and really, it was that 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 opportunity that that kicked off the industrial revolution, the post-World War II industrial revolution in this country you know, 600,000 engineers, 400,000 doctors, um, all in, in, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners, presidents, uh, all empowered as a consequence of the education they received made possible by the original GI Bill. We have that opportunity again for this generation of veterans, but the nation's colleges and universities um, need, to, need to step up and um, take on the challenge of, of creating um, pathways for this generation of veterans to um, uh, succeed in a, the traditional college university environment.
0: Mm, I, I totally agree. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Mike Haney, and Mike is the founding executive director of Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families. We've got to figure out a way to to decrease the social isolation and the disconnectedness that so many veterans feel as they return back from um, from their service and just kind of get reabsorbed into the country or, or not absorbed, um, what else can we do? What else can I be teaching my kids about military service? I mean, when I heard your idea of like the idea of reinstituting the draft so that everybody could feel an equal connection, almost fear, almost obligation, um, it does make sense uh, but i also remember growing up thinking that the draft was coming and being terrified by it how do we how do we get our kids to really connect into these veterans if like you say too they're not in our world they they they're not from my my neighborhood my church my community
2: well you know that that's um but they're out there somewhere they are I, yeah i think the answer to i think the answer to your question is um you know to go find them, and and there are ways in every community around the country. There are community um, community connected organizations that, in in one part or another of what they do, um, they they serve veterans and the extent to which, you know, um, families that are otherwise disconnected from this community um, can engage in those community organizations. Um, to, to really get to know who our veterans are. Um, you know, same thing is true of college campuses. There are um, you know, Student Veteran of America chapters, for example, on college campuses. I, I think where I'm going with this is, um, again, similar to the, the message I concluded with on the, on the TED, walk, TED Talk is, um, really, I think the first step is, is to, to get to know who our veterans are. You know, to take the opportunity um, to to somehow engage with veterans, and you know whether it whether we're talking about generations from you know generations of of veterans uh, that that represent the the post 9/11 community or the post Vietnam community, or you know the the really getting to know who they are and beginning to understand the service experience mm. and how the service experience. Then has implications for the um, the, the post-service experience um, because I I think at the end of the day that's um, that's that's where we can do the the most good you know I'll, I'll give you a, uh, an example um, here from upstate New York we had a, a local elementary school um, decided that they were going to um, help their their students. Um, uh, understand who veterans are on Veterans Day, and they they gave an assignment to the students, you know, these third and fourth graders, I think, to to find a, a veteran in their family and, and interview them. Hmm. Well, it turns out that um, there was a large percentage of those students who had nobody to interview because they they you know even in their extended family there is nobody had been nobody that served so. They reached out to us here and uh, at the Institute and, and we um, connected all those third and fourth graders with, with veterans in this community that were not necessarily family members, but those third and fourth graders um, spent time with those veterans, interviewed them about their service experience, and, and I think tomorrow I'm heading over to that elementary school to listen to these students talk about what they learned. And I think that's a great, very tangible example of, of how... Um, you can bridge what has become this this divide between the um, civilian and and veteran community.
0: I totally agree. Dr. Mike Haney, beautiful uh, insights, I think, for all of us. We we do. We just need to be more proactive. Go find them and... and, and I've seen it with my own kids, and literally introduce them to some of these people that are not just heroes, but also just regular Joes, right? That that have gone out and um, served. It, it is; it's a job above every other job, um, if you're willing to go put your life on the line for all of us. We appreciate Dr. Mike Haney and his great work there as the Executive Director of Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families.
3: The rest of today 's Matt Townsend episode we are honoring Veterans Day Today and started off the episode by hearing some first hand accounts of war experiences from a Vietnam war medic and Then we just finished an interview with Mike Haney discussing the support for American war vets or the lack of it and he said that Americans are very patriotic and we tend in many cases to support our service volunteers, but true support for our veterans and those who risk their lives and sacrifice their families for our country doesn't stop when they take their uniform off. It's not enough just to say thank you when somebody's suited up in their military gear and then completely disregard or forget about them when they need a job or they need a college education or they need to reintegrate into society and feel loved and accepted. He said one major problem war veterans face is social disconnect and isolation. Not having peers that really understand them or take the time to understand what they've been through. And then institutions and policies who don't really make room for these people to reintegrate into society. I thought it was pretty profound when Dr. Haney brought up that when someone volunteers for war, they are shouldering society's most troubling endeavor. They are taking on a different level of responsibility so that we don't have to. And we have a moral obligation to them. We heard some really touching things today, and I just want to close off today's episode with a few final thoughts from Matt about truly appreciating our veterans and feeling empathy for them.
0: You know, okay. so when somebody says to you that they're going to that they think that you should reinstate the draft and you're a parent, you're a father, you're a mother, what goes through your mind? Does it terrify you? Ah! It probably should, right? I mean, it's a scary, scary idea. But if if there was a draft and, um, you know, somebody in every one of your uh, close friend groups, one 18, 19-year-old boy or girl would uh, be enlisted or three, let's say, out of all of your kids' friends were enlisted into the military or if everybody had to serve – for, uh, you know, three months or go to a basic training and then a draft or whatever. um, How would that alter your thoughts about military service? If if one of your you know, when your kids are graduating from high school and you hear, yeah, where are you going? Well, I'm going to go to this university. I'm going to this university. Um, I'm going on an LDS mission somewhere. And then one person says, yeah, I'm going to join the military. What do you think about that choice? Do you think, oh, well, that's – he could do – he really could do so much more than serve in the military? Or do you actually revere that choice? Everybody has an opinion, right? And I wonder if uh, one of the reasons why we don't seem to be maybe um, appreciating our veterans as much is because, like our guest said, they're not – it's not – the military may not be part of your world anymore. You don't have to – you know, that the military is for the guys that like guns, the people that just like guns and kind of middle America people. The, the problem is um, the world is, is not necessarily a safe place. We have a lot of politicians making a lot of big decisions, and um, they're probably being uh, made by a certain bias, pro-military, against military. And think about the Democrats and Republicans and how many of those people today are, have served in the military fewer and fewer of our leaders have actually been in the military and yet they're making the biggest decisions of the of our lives about military activity going to war threatening going to war using military force so one of the things that we can all do as human beings is and this is a unique gift i think to us as humans is we actually can project we can we can actually understand, feel empathy, feel compassion, we can go and even learn more about experiences that we're not even familiar with, and actually be influenced by those experiences. I watched Band of Brothers, and it shook me to the core. And then I watched a similar documentary on what happened in the Pacific, and it shook me even worse. To think about what these people were willing to do for our lives, and that wasn't even in it. Then I sat down with a veteran friend of mine. He's been on the radio show. We, in fact, we'll probably. Uh, I'm going to try to see if we can't play, play some of his clips of his interview. And when I realized the sacrifices he made in Vietnam, it floors me. So I sit down with my kids, and I'm doing everything I can to get in their head that sacrifice that people make. Um, I've said it on the show a lot. Uh, I appreciate all your opinions. Everybody's got one, but um, there's something different about somebody that's willing to put their, you know, their money where their mouth is or their life where their mouth is. And so somehow we've got to get these veterans to the front of the line. And uh, I think recognizing more of them, understanding more, sitting down and listening to them. And then if not, start actually asking yourself. How would we make different policy decisions? Would you vote differently? If there was a draft and your children could be sent to war because of the draft, would you choose a different leader? And what kind of leader would you choose? And what would be different about them? Just stuff we've got to be thinking about, folks. we I think a lot of us, we're just too much on autopilot when it comes to our political choices and um, but. There's something special about these people that are willing to step forward and put their lives in jeopardy for you.
3: I like what Matt said there, that we shouldn't be on autopilot with our decisions and that if you really take the time to learn about another's experience and especially those who have risked their lives and lost their lives for our country, you can learn to feel empathy for others. And it also might help you make more educated and well-rounded decisions. Understanding the sacrifice of others perhaps could make us better citizens and more informed members of society. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode, everyone. Today, we dedicated this episode in honor of all those who have and are currently serving our country. Veterans Day is not a day to glorify war, but to be grateful for peace, to think about what changes we can make in our lives to promote more peace in our own homes and communities to honor sacrifice, and to bring perspective to our lives. So thank you. I'm Leanna Tan, bringing you the best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. Join me again next time for another episode of Matt Townsend.